0: Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoris, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating to managing projects effectively to working in hybrid teams.
1: For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com/slash AMA.
2: Performance goal is passing the test. Learning goal is Do I know something about safety and can I apply it in my life in the way to make the workplace safer? And our mistake that we make in organizations is that we think that if people have achieved the performance goal, passing the test, then they've achieved the learning goal. And that's not true.
1: I'm Selesa Steele,
0: I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 337, which features a conversation with author and speaker Daniel H. Pink. This is an encore airing of an interview from our archives. Understanding the science behind topics related to human behavior can be extremely powerful for learning businesses. And Dan Pink covers just such topics in his provocative best selling books that include Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, To Sell as Human, The Surprising Truth About Moving Others, when, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, and published in 2022, The Power of Regret How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. Salise so and I have followed Dan Pink's work for many years, we're fans, and we highly recommend his well researched, well written, and frankly, just enjoyable books, which plumb topics that have clear application in the realm of learning and in running a learning business. Selisa and Dan talk about the importance of when learning happens, motivation, learning goals versus performance goals, persuasion, marketing, selling, French verb conjugations, and not to be overlooked, swimming in Japan. Selisa and Dan spoke in July 2019, and this episode originally aired in 2019. <laughs>
1: Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Daniel H. Pink, the author of six provocative, best-selling books, including To Sell is Human, The Surprising Truth About Moving Others, which uses social science to offer a fresh look at the art and science of sales, and Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, which draws on over 50 years of behavioral science to overturn conventional wisdom about human motivation. Dan's newest book, Win, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, unlock scientific secrets to good timing to help us flourish in life. Dan's also the creator of the Pinkcast, a series of short videos that feature science-based tools and tips for working smarter and living better. He's a comic aficionado and a keynote speaker. Dan, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast.
2: So Lisa, thanks for having me.
1: So before we dive in, in earnest, you know, what beyond my short introduction would you like for listeners to know about your work and your background?
2: Wow, I think that you covered a lot of it. Uh, I don't. I don't think there's any secret to my essence. I think the one thing that I think has had a bigger effect on me than than I realized and might go unnoticed is I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> I, mean, I am a Midwesterner, and my Midwesternness comes out a lot more than one whatever than I would have ever expected. So. If you notice me being especially polite.
1: <laughs> I was going to say, I could expect a very polite conversation. Then, right?
2: Saying please and thank you at every turn. That's the explanation for it.
1: <laughs> well, excellent. Well, then we'll we'll just dive right in. And okay, in Dr- yeah. so in Drive, I know you talk about motivation 3.0. And so I'm hoping yeah. maybe you can briefly recap what that is. And yes, I realize I'm asking you to compress a lot.
2: Sure. That's cool. So let me take three steps back from that question. And let's talk about human motivation. What motivates human beings? And the answer is not a singular thing. It's not anything you can distill into a single sentence because human beings are a mix of drives. So we have one drive in that we have a biological drive. We can call that motivation 1.0, right? We eat when we're hungry. We drink when we're thirsty. We have sex to satisfy those kinds of urges. So that's and, and those biological drives are obviously part of what it is to be human, but it's not all of what it is to be human. Uh, so we have another drive, too. We do respond reasonably predictably to rewards and punishments in our environment. You know, if, if, you, if every time I come to the office and put on the headphones I'm wearing right now and the Bose Corporation delivered an electric shock every time I put them on... I would probably stop wearing these headphones, right? Uh, Cause I'm responding to that punishment. So we respond pretty well to rewards and punishments and that's another drive. But human beings also have a third drive. And, and that's what I think has been neglected in a lot of our thinking in organizations about human beings until very recently. That human beings do things because they like doing them. Human beings do things because it's the right thing to do. Human beings do things because they get better at it because it's challenging because it achieves some kind of purpose, and that's part of what it is to be human. And so, if we look at all of these drives together, I think what's important is that we have to have a three dimensional view of human beings. And until relatively recently, organizations were taking only that two dimensional view of human beings. They're saying, "Yeah, they're these biological, they got these biological drives, whatever. We're going to have bathrooms and water fountains and whatnot, uh, but uh, we're also, but all, we can stop at that second drive because if we just have in our organization, that the right system of rewards and punishments, Uh, people are going to do what we want them to do the way we want them to do it, and everything is going to be right with the world. And that turns out to be fundamentally untrue.
1: And so, you know, for me, I think that what you laid out that just motivation 3.0, that's been often neglected, but it can be crucial. I mean, it seems that there's really clear application of that to learning businesses. I mean, both in terms of, oh, heck yeah. Yeah. And so in terms of the internal staff and sort of how they're organized and how they do their work together, but also then around how they serve the learners. That That is the main focus of what they're doing. And and so maybe if we could focus on that second group, the learners, uh, what applications or, or implications of Motivation 3.0 do you see for how we might better serve and support learners?
2: The, the main idea, what we know from this research, and, and that's also actually important too, is that what I'm saying here is not... Um, philosophical. It's not, hey, this is my opinion about how to run organizations better. I'm looking at 50 years of science that says we have some pretty good evidence about what works and what doesn't when it comes to motivation. And what we know from this science is the following. And it goes directly, Salisa, to your your question about 2.0 and 3.0. Here's what we know. There's a certain kind of motivator we use in organizations. We use them in learning too, about which more in a moment, but there's a certain kind of motivator we use in organizations. Psychologists, social scientists call it a controlling contingent motivator. I like to call it an if-then reward. If you do this, then you get that. Here's what we know about if-then rewards. If-then rewards are very effective for simple tasks with short time horizons. The reason for that, and there's nuance here, is that human beings like rewards. Um, you know, we'll probably end up talking in a, in a minute or two about intrinsic motivation. The fact that there's intrinsic motivation, that human beings have inherent motivations, doesn't mean that human beings don't have extrinsic motivators, motivations too. We respond to rewards and punishments in our environment in some cases. And so if-then rewards are extremely effective for simple tasks with short time horizons. We like rewards they get us to focus narrowly. However, the same body of research tells us that if-then rewards are far less effective for more complex tasks with longer time horizons. Uh, And the reason for that is that rewards get our attention in such a focused, narrow way. That's effective if you want a narrow focus, but for complicated things, you don't want a narrow focus. You want to have a more expansive focus. When the finish line is is far away, you you need something else to keep you sustained over that long haul. And so if then rewards great for simple and short-term, not so great for complex and long-term. And that's a very sturdy finding in social science. I mean, there there aren't any people out there in the world who will look at this body of evidence and say that's wrong because it's so, so, so well-established. Now, let's go to your actual question here, which is like, what does it mean for learning? It means a lot for learning. Um, It depends on what your learning objectives are. You could conceivably say to people, let's say that you want them to... Let's say you want them to learn a new safety procedure or something like that. You could pay them. You could say, "Here's what we're going to do: we're going to give everybody 100 bucks for taking this course and 200 bucks for passing the exam on the safety course." And chances are, you would have a lot of people taking the course and a lot of people passing the exam. Uh, I don't know though whether that would immediately translate into a safer workplace. Mm. Um, and 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 that's and that's the key right there. So right. what you do with those contingent rewards, if you take this course, you get a hundred bucks. If you pass the test, you get 200 bucks. What you get is people narrowly focus on that particular task. You get them focused on the completing that objective. I'm going to get through this course. I'm going to do it any way that I can, and I'm going to pass the test. And there's a lot of evidence out there that that is actually, that that, that that's, can, can be a wrong way to do things. Um, and I'll give you one more point and then I'll Shut up for a second. (laughs) And that is, it's it's the difference between what are called learning goals and what are called performance goals, learning goals and performance goals. So if you think about this, performance goal is passing the test. Learning goal is, do I know something about safety and can I apply it in my life in the way that to make the workplace safer? And our mistake that we make in organizations is that we think that if people have achieved the performance goal, passing the test, then they've achieved the learning goal. And that's not true. It's true sometimes, but it's not true all the time. And this is enormously important. And I can even give you an example in my own life about that. I'll I'll give you a painful example in my own life. Yes, please. I took, took, uh, about, about me as a learner, I took French for six years in high school and college. I got straight A's in French. I can't speak French. (laughs) Why? Why can't I speak French? Because I was focused entirely on the performance goal. What do I have to do to get an A on this quiz in French? What do I have to do to get an A on that midterm exam in French? And so I was narrowly focused on that particular performance goal. I'm gonna get 100% on that quiz about conjugating irregular verbs, right? But as soon as I got that grade, I hadn't really learned it. I was just basically performing, and uh, I hadn't, and I, I had no idea how to apply it. Uh, I hadn't the, the the learning that I had, such as it was, was incredibly shallow and not very deep. And so, this is the mistake that we make in 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 learning that we want people actually to learn. And when we focus too much on the performance goals, it can actually inhibit learning. It's it's very paradoxical. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. So. I like to have, I think one way to help people understand it is to think about their own experiences. And for me, at some level, I didn't fully understand this phenomenon until I started thinking about why I can't speak French.
1: Mm. Well, it's very interesting because, like you're saying, we're you know we're in the learning business. You know, so much focus is given to things like learning objectives, and you know, you should be able to do this by the end of yeah. this course, and all of that. Which, to your point, is it's that performance focus because but, we want to be measurable and we want to be able to see that that impact.
2: So here's the thing. It gets complicated because those like certain kinds of learning objectives are not inherently bad. It's just a matter of what you're doing to get there. And it's complicated. So if you think about something like in school, you think about something like grades, there's nothing inherently wrong with grades. It depends on how they're used. And so one of the things that we know about learning, one of the things we know about mastery of any kind is that the way that people make, the way that people learn, the way that people get better is by having information and feedback on how they're doing. So a grade can be information and feedback. You can say, here's your grade right now, you're performing at a B level, and, but here are some steps that you can take to perform at, a, at, an, at an A level. That's grade as a, as a form of feedback. But in many cases, in certain kinds of learning environments, the grade is the, like for me in French, that's the entire point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is to get an A in the class. And the structure is such that we that the, the policymakers, the architects of all of this, have the false belief that getting an A in a test means you've learned French. And that's the thing that's not that's the thing that's not true.
1: Yeah. No, so I think there are amazing number of implications uh, of this. And I think then the application comes down to some of what you're starting to to get into around you know how do we make use of learning objectives to the extent that there are uh, yeah. tests involved? How do we make use of, of those um, grades and things so that we can always make sure that the focus really is on the learning goals as opposed to Absolutely. the performance goals?
2: So you could, take a, you could take a learning objective and then, like to me, I don't know, give me, a, give me, what might, give me an example of what might be a learning objective.
1: We can stay with your French example, you know, but by the okay. end of this course, you should be able to conjugate "être" in the present tense.
2: Right, right. That's very kind of performance oriented. But what yeah. I would do is, is like, I think that a better performance goal would be as follows. Uh, we are going to um, make a Skype call to a hotel in Montreal, and you will have to make a reservation there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then... So we're going to see how well you do on that. Then the other thing that we're going to do is that you're going to teach someone else mm. how to do this.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, to me, that would start getting at learning rather than, than, than merely performance. Yes. Because believe me, believe me, Celisa, mm. there was a time in my life when if you needed an irregular verb <laughs> conjugated, I was your man.
1: <laughs> and you have the A's to prove it. I do. <laughs> well, great. Motivation is something we've talked about on the podcast um, in the past, and we'll make sure to to link to some of those other episodes, because I think exactly what you're getting at with the focus on performance and also on the extrinsic versus intrinsic foci again there. You know, that's all really important when trying to think about how best to support learners in learning and how best to provide for their engagement in the experience.
0: At Tagoris, we're experts in the global business of lifelong learning, and we use our expertise to help clients better understand their markets, connect with new customers, make the right investment decisions, and grow their learning businesses. We achieve these goals through expert market assessment, strategy formulation, and platform selection services. If you're looking for a partner to help your learning business achieve greater reach, revenue, and impact, learn more at tagorascom services.
1: I was going to move on to talking about some of what underlies your book to sell as human I mean the the premise there really is that uh, all of us work in sales in the sense that we have to try to move and and persuade others whether those others are family members or or work colleagues or uh, would-be customers And, and certainly learning businesses have to sell they have to secure the revenue they need to remain in business and oh, yeah, to get yeah, yeah. those learners. They need those learners so that then they can have that desired impact on that field or profession that they're really trying to help by the learning that they're offering. And so, you know, I think there's this connection between marketing and, and learning where, you know, in order for the learning to make any difference, it has to be, people have to know about it, it has to be marketed. And I think that fits with what you're talking about in the distinction you make between sales and non-sales selling, that idea that persuasion and, and delivering value are really key and fundamental to, to both marketing and learning. And I know that there's a, a quote from To Sell is Human where you write, today, both sales and non-sales selling depend more on the creative, heuristic, problem-solving skills of artists than on the reductive, algorithmic, problem-solving skills of technicians, which I find really fascinating and so I'm wondering what advice, if we can get you know practical about it, what advice you might have for those um, working and learning businesses about how to create those kinds of skills, the, the creative, heuristic, problem-finding skills?
2: Yeah, I think it's hard. I think you have to unpack what that means and then focus on the particular components. One of the most fundamental skills in any kind of influence and persuasion is um Perspective taking, you know, can you get out of your own head and see things from someone else's point of view? That is so monumentally important. So, whether I'm on any level in learning businesses, so whether you are actually literally selling a product or service to a prospective customer, or whether you are an instructor who is trying to get her class to learn something, you have to be able to see things from someone else's point of view, hear things the way that, the, that they hear them. And there's some, there's, and I think that's a fundamental skill, and most of us are not very good at it. So one thing to do is recognize that. The second thing to do is take some small steps to get better at it. So one of the things that people don't do a very good job on, this is not an insight, but it's still important, is people stink at listening. Mm-hmm. And wanna, you know, and, and it's always bugged me. I'm not saying I'm great at listening, but the, people don't listen. And it's in some ways our school's fault because we go to school, they teach us how to read, they teach us how to write. They don't say, oh, people inherently know how to read. People inherently know how to write. But they say, oh, we don't need to teach people how to listen because they have ears. And that's just not true. People aren't very good at listening. And so you have to get better at listening. And there's some small things you can do on that. One of them, very simple. I mean, they're so such simple things, but they're rarely honored by people. One of them would be to, when someone else is talking don't think about what you are going to say next. Actually listen to what they're saying. And even better, before you respond, pause, make sure it's settled in. And even before you respond, pause, repeat what they said in your own words, and then offer what you're gonna say next. If people were to do that, just slow down a little bit, actually listen, pay attention to what people are saying, rather than simply waiting for their turn to talk, which is what happens in most cases, if they actually pay attention and engage and listen, pause before responding and recapitulate the other person's point of view, or even ask a question about it, are you saying that X, Y, and Z, I think you get much better at influence and persuasion.
1: I'm taking a pause.
2: Because because (laughs) because you understand what the other person is you understand what the other person is trying to say, um, and so this is, you know, one of the one of the things. The other aspect of this is that if you look at like sales, sales, if you have a customer or prospect who knows precisely what their problem is, they don't need you very much, right? They can they can they can solve their problem on their own. Where you're more valuable is when people don't know what their problem is, or they're wrong about their problem, and that requires the skill of problem solving but the pre- problem finding can you surface latent problems can you can you unearth hidden problems the the predicate for that is you have to be able to listen
1: i think it's an excellent point that if we listen more it's going to be valuable in that moment of persuasion talking with a potential customer or a learner. And then there's also the fact that it's going to help us understand our market that much better. Any, so any assumptions that we might be making about what our learners need, if we're truly listening, we will either be able to verify what we think they need is correct, or we'll come to understand that, oh, actually, you know, this seminar, this workshop, this uh, online course we were thinking of offering really doesn't speak to what we're hearing as a need from learners. Exactly. Okay, so I feel like we're doing sort of a a, a quick tour of, of of some of your your best hits here, and so I was gonna <laughs> move on to to win because I think win very much like drive, which we started out talking about, has has a lot to offer lifelong mm-hmm. learners and and those supporting and providing uh, for those lifelong learners, and so you know based on what you learned in researching and writing, win, um, what recommendations do you have for? learning businesses about how they might leverage timing to achieve the best learning results and outcomes
2: so there there's so many things that learning businesses can do again i'm going to take two steps backward and think about what 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 do i what do we really mean by timing because that is also multifaceted so part of it is so 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 here once again we go to the the we go to the research and the research here is complicated because there's no one out there saying i'm a scientist of timing but what you have is you have research being done in maybe 20, 25 different fields that are asking these kinds of questions about timing. So things like, how does, you know, uh, how does our performance, how does our mood change over the course of a day? Yeah, that's real, actually ends up being really important. How do breaks affect our performance and our learning? Uh, how do beginnings affect us? How do midpoints affect us? How do endings affect us of any kind, not beyond the day? How do groups synchronize in time? So all of these, I, I, all of these yield lessons for, learning organizations. At the very beginning, at the unit of the day, there's some really, really important things here. I mean, hugely important for any kind of learning business. And and the most important of which is this, that human beings' brain power, our cognitive abilities do not remain static over the course of the day. They change. And so your brain power is different at different times of day. And the premise for so much of what goes on in organizations from meetings oh it doesn't matter whether we have this meeting at 9 30 or 2 30. uh courses seminars oh we can have this seminar at 4 30 or 11 15 it doesn't really matter any kind of meeting you know you know uh it 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 matters a lot because our brain power doesn't stay remain static over the course of a day it changes and it changes in material way and in their way. And once again, there is a mountain of evidence showing this a mountain. So you look at something like, um, you know, one of uh, just a brilliant piece of research headed by Francesca Gino at Harvard. And along with two Danish researchers, they looked at 2 million Danish standardized test scores. So kids in Denmark take standardized tests as they do here in the States. And in Denmark, the students take the tests on computers rather than on Number two, pencil and bubble forms, which many jurisdictions in the U.S. still do. So they take them on computers. But on testing day, the typical Danish school has more students than computers, so everybody can't take tests at the same time. So the students are randomly assigned to take the tests at different times a day. And so, the, so some take them early, some take them late. The students who take the standardized test in the afternoon score as if they've missed two weeks of school. So that's a big deal.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, that 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 to me that calls into question the validity of, or could call into question the validity of standardized tests as a policy making tool. I think what worries me more is if schools are gonna make decisions about particular students when, you know, oh my gosh, this score is very low. Oh, you should be in this kind of program. You should be in this kind of class. When if that student were assigned to random, had been randomly assigned to take tests in the morning, she might have scored higher. And, you know, you see it in just a whole array of data uh, another really important study out of, out of uh, Los Angeles, again, looking at millions and millions of anonymized profiles of, of Los Angeles elementary school students, showed that students who take math in the morning learn more math, period. They have higher test scores, period, than students who take math in the afternoon. And so the point of all this is that there is a, there, there is a mountain range, not even a single mountain, a mountain range of evidence showing that brain power changes over the course of a day, and so if you're in a learning business, you're doing a seminar, you're doing a training, like in person, the time of day makes a huge difference. Um, it's not simply a logistical issue, and, and 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 that's just like one example of how. The science of timing can affect what happens in learning organizations.
1: Yeah, I think that's fascinating and a point that you make throughout, you know, when, that when should be given sort of as much weight as what. And I think, you know, learning businesses, we tend to focus on, you know, what are we teaching and, you know, what are those learning objectives or those performance goals that we have for it and we tend to talk very little around when other than as you said for it to just be a logistical choice you know we have this slot or this slot you know where do we put it totally
2: you're right and i'm not saying that the when question is more important than the what it's not more important but i think it can be as important uh you know and i would and i would even see you and raise you like you know a lot of what we know about learning going back to some of the motivation point is the why question matters too we often don't you know so so if you have you know you see it in in, in school, where kids come home and they say to their parents, "Why do I need to be doing this homework?" and the kids say, the parents say, "Just be quiet and do your homework," uh, because they don't have a good answer for that. And so, you know, why am I going to this this safety class? Why am I going to this um, two day seminar on how to use this piece of software? Why does it matter? Having, answering that question is also is, is also is also important. So we're at the juncture. Of, so if you get the the why correct you have people who are be more motivated learners if you get the when correct you're going to have their brains functioning better and again these are all strategic questions they're not simply you know logistical questions
1: i've been asking you uh, you know questions about lifelong learning because that's uh, you know who our listeners are that's what they live and breathe. I know it isn't your primary domain, but obviously you're uh, an observer, a thinker, a lifelong learner yourself. And so I'm curious when you think big picture about what's on the horizon for, for humans and how we live and what's coming maybe in the next five years or so, what is it that excites you? And to the extent that you have thoughts on it, you know what implications do you see for learning of whatever's you want to focus on out there on the horizon? Uh,
2: yeah. I, I mean, who knows? I mean, I don't, I don't think I have a better take on this than anybody else. I can just give you my opinion of, of what I'm, what I'm seeing out there. And it's a part, sort of maybe a dog's breakfast of insights here. So one thing that, that came out in the when research is the importance of, of breaks in learning. Um, and, you know, we, we, we've, we've absorbed this ethic that the way to get stuff done, the way to, The way to learn is just to power through and not take a break. And that's fundamentally flawed. It's just not true. There's, uh, again, this whole mass of evidence showing that breaks are part of our learning. Uh, And I think the same thing is true. I think we're having a re-reckoning in this country, especially with sleep and the importance of sleep, not only in well-being in general, but in learning per se. So I think that we're going to have, in in many ways, a more three-dimensional view of what learning is. It isn't simply sitting there grinding away. It's part of how do you prepare your mind and your body for the the possibilities of learning. And that goes to things like taking breaks and getting enough sleep. I think that's going to end up being a, uh, it's already becoming a a big factor. And we know a huge amount about how sleep consolidates memory, how sleep consolidates learning. So believe it or not, the, the rest, the breaks and the sleep, I think are going to become a bigger deal in learning in general. Um, I think one of the challenges is to what extent we can do more self directed learning. And, uh, you know, out, which is a challenge for learning businesses uh, if people are able to simply s- select out. Uh, to me, I've always thought that the, one of the most potent learning technologies, the most potent learning platforms, call it the most potent learning organizations. I don't even know what you call it, out there, and I, I don't think it's been fully recognized is YouTube. Um, when people want to learn, especially how to do something increasingly, they, 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 they go to YouTube. How do I fix this door? How do I change this oil? How do I make a blueberry pie? They're going to, and and there's something in that um, that I think are lessons for uh, learning organizations. What is it about YouTube that is so appealing to learners? And I think um, I don't know, but it's like the the lessons are brief. They're mm-hmm. very, very specific. They're very specific to what people are doing. They're just in time, so it isn't like, um, you know, it's like you you can send me to a course on how to fix doors. But you know what? Learning how to fix doors is really important to me when my freaking door is broken and I and I can't close it. You know what I mean? Right. So it's the so so I think there's a lesson in there in the in the, in YouTube as a as a massive force of learning. I mean, there are all kinds of horrible and insidious things that go on in YouTube too, but it's a incredibly potent form of learning. And then the other thing is, is I, you know, I do think that um, we, we're, we're probably going to be reckoning with the social side of learning. I, I, I do, th- yeah, as much as I like self-directed learning, a lot of learning in life is with other people. It's social. And so what are some, and I think an interesting question is, what are some ways to, Um, facilitate, accelerate learning in a social way that isn't the traditional classroom setting.
0: Mm. And
2: and I think what you see there is I think you see professional professional associations doing some very interesting things on that. I think you even see self-organized things like book clubs are a really interesting model for how people learn socially.
1: Well, great. I mean, yeah, so I think sleep and breaks, you said, and I totally agree that those are so important. Um, I heard uh, someone recently describe sleep as sort of the uh, the, the Swiss army knife of, of, of life, right? They can sort of address yeah. everything if we're sleeping well. It can help us think more clearly, yeah. learn better, um, yeah. reaction time the, the emphasis on self-directed learning, but then also, you know, not self-directed learning that is uh, that excludes social. And so, how to make sort of some of that social a little more self-organized and, and perhaps right. informal.
2: The other thing is, like, it's like, and this is not a, a big insight. Is you know, if I'm a, if I'm in a learning organization, if I'm a learning organization, a learning business, and I want to know what's going on and look for some ways to do better then one of the things that I want to do is I want to look for bright spots out there in the world where, where people are learning a lot and people are actually learning without me. And so to me, like you look at YouTube and say, well, like, like let's unpack that. Like I would get a team of people. Let's un- like why are, why is YouTube so popular as a learning tool? Let's unpack that. What are the attributes of it? Can we do that same kind of thing? Why are book clubs so popular as a form of learning? What is it about book clubs that uh, attract people? Maybe we can do something like that. So if you look at where some of the bright spots, some of the innovation is happening and try to understand what's going into that, then I think it yields a lot of really interesting lessons.
1: Mm, that's Yeah, that's a great suggestion. So look for those bright spots and then try to kind of take them apart, see what makes them tick. Yeah. Um, okay, so for next to last question, we're going to switch gears a little bit. Um, this is a question that we ask of all of our guests, and it's wow. one that focuses on your personal learning specifically. And the question is, what is one of the most Can powerful... Can you speak French? <laughs> right. <laughs> si, si tu veux, nous yeah. pouvons parler français.
2: Oh my God, your French is so much better than mine. <laughs> so... Now, where uh, did where did you take... Did you ever... How did you learn your French?
1: Well, I started in junior high and, yeah. you know, probably had potentially a similar experience uh, the first year or two but then i i went to france on a, a little exchange bingo uh, and so that was to your point right you need to call up to make, the hotel and, you, and make the reservation make,
2: you had to make your way you had yeah. to find a bathroom you had to get food you you had a right exactly yeah, yeah. So, all right
1: all right so back to the the question that we ask yeah. everyone usually you know without the French, but, um, so what is one of the most powerful learning experiences you've been involved in as an adult, sort of since finishing your you know, formal education?
2: I did a fellowship, a media fellowship in Japan in 2007, where I was able to spend a couple of months there. And so I, you know, I lived in a, I and mean, with my family as well, I, we lived in an apartment in Tokyo. We, you know, and, and I, just simply the day-to-day life of living in another place to me was a power even for a relatively short time was was just was just powerful. I ended up, you know, doing research there as well into the into the in Japan's gigantic comic industry. But in some ways I learned more by going to the grocery store in Japan and trying to figure out what I was gonna get and how I was gonna get it if you think my French is bad, you should hear my Japanese. <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, going to the grocery store or why 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 are the trains so much better in Japan than they are here in the northeast corridor of the United States or even things like, you know, things that are seared into my own experience and memory is are not like, oh, let's go see, you know, oh, we got to see that temple or the Tokyo Dome or whatever. But to me, um, I mean, my kids were fairly little at the time. They were, must've been, or were they like, like maybe 11, nine and five, somewhere around there. So they're pretty little. And, uh, at the time, all all three of my kids were fairly serious swimmers. And so we would go to this local public pool in the evening in Japan. And so this family, I'm white, my wife is white and amazingly our kids turned out white. (laughs) Um, and, and so you have this and and a five person family is a very large family in Japan. And so, and also we are, we tend to be taller than average. And so what you had is you had these, this like squadron of giant white people coming into these Japanese public pool. And it was like, that was just, uh, that to me is an unforgettable experience. Like what's it like to navigate the locker room? And you know the rules of the pool and the kids. You know what are the kids learning from this and so forth. So, so for me, it's like that experience of being immersed in another culture was, as an adult, probably the most powerful learning experience.
1: No, that also uh, matches up with some of my experience. I think just you know travel and especially if it's something like what you're describing, where you're. Um, staying in a yeah, place exactly. for a while, for exactly that immersion.
2: Exactly, exactly, exactly. It's it's and it's it's uh, it's like to me like the real like I love to travel, but you know a lot of a lot of travel that you en- one ends up doing is fairly ephemeral. So you're going to go here for a week or whatever, Yeah. but there's something about living in an apartment and going to the grocery store and taking your kids to the pool for exercise at night and commuting on the subway and all that is where really, to me at least, where the learning about being in another place locks in.
0: Dan Pink is a best-selling author and speaker. In the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 337, you'll find links to his website and the Pink Cast. We highly recommend the Pinkcast, which is a series of short, free videos. Each one features a science-based tool or tip for working smarter and living better.
1: At leadinglearning.com episode 337, you'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast, and we would be grateful if you would subscribe if you haven't yet, as subscriptions give us some data on the impact of the
0: podcast. We'd also be grateful if you would rate us on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen, especially if you find the Leading Learning Podcast valuable. Celise and I personally would appreciate it, and ratings and reviews help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Go to leadinglearning.com Apple to leave a rating.
1: Lastly, please help us grow the Leading Learning community. At leadinglearning.com episode 337, there are links to find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and
0: Facebook. Thanks again and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.